listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Monday, the 20th of June, 2022, and I'm joined here via Zoom by senior Swedish diplomat, Ambassador Jakob Hallgren. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings, but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both, and you can like and subscribe to our, our feed on YouTube. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with people. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Thirdly, you can follow nknews.org on Twitter or myself at jackozjaccozed on Twitter. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email us at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, so to interview, uh, to introduce my guest today more properly, my guest, Ambassador Jakob Hallgren, is currently the director of the Swedish Institute for International Affairs, or UI. But before that, he was ambassador for disarmament and non-proliferation uh, and the ambassador of Sweden to South Korea, as well as the deputy director of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, also known as CIPRI. You can find him on Twitter at Hallgren Jakob, and we'll put the link there in the show notes. Welcome on the show, Jakob. Great to have you on. Thank you very much, Jaco, for the invitation. Have you ever been to North Korea? Actually, I have not. So I cannot boast about that. I have met uh, quite a few North Koreans, but I have not been to the country. Now, you were a Sweden's ambassador to South Korea during a very interesting time with summits and meetings between the two Koreas and between North Korea and the United States. How do you look back on that time? Well, first of all, I realize I must uh, uh, just uh, justify or kind of develop uh, or uh, become a little bit more precise regarding my re uh, response before. I have indeed been two steps into North Korea at the uh, DMZ in, in Pamignon a couple of times. But yes. Yes. How do I look back on that time in, in 2018 and onwards? Well, I arrived in, in Seoul in the summer of 2018. It was a time full of hope and many were very optimistic and hopeful about the prospects of a, a, a rapprochement mm. and of, uh, that something uh, quite drastic would happen in a positive sense between the two countries. But then, of course, uh, looking back at that time and how that hope has uh, progressively veined into something which is today quite different, yeah, it, it might have been naive, but yeah, maybe maybe there could have been some chances if some things would have uh, turned out differently that we would have been in a more positive place today, but difficult to say. Uh, and then when did you leave South Korea and go back to Sweden? I left in August uh, last year, 2021. Okay, so that period of, of hopefulness had definitely already finished, hadn't it? Yes, yes. And then you moved to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, where you were the deputy director. Tell us a little bit, uh, to our audience who may not know, what is CIPRI and, and what was your role there? Well, well, I, I was at CIPRI before coming to, to Seoul, and then I moved to the Stockholm uh, International Institute of International Affairs, also called UI ah. in, in, in Swedish. So uh, uh, at CIPRI, before I went to, to Korea, I was the deputy director, and now I am the director. And actually, both institutes have activities and research and analysis related to uh, Korea's 
uh, at Cipri, where I was for six years between 2012 and 2018, I, I oversaw and closely collaborated with actually both South Koreans and the South Korean institutions and mm-hmm. North Koreans and North Korean institutions to, to some extent. And uh, at the International Institute of International Affairs here in Stockholm, where I am now, we also have a program focusing on Pacific on, on Northeast Asia and specifically some research progress, uh, projects on, on North uh, Korea and more specifically the relation between Sweden and North uh, Korea. And uh, when I was at CIPRI, we had regular uh, visits and, and meetings, uh, both uh, research fellows from South Korea and, and visitors from, from North Korea and um, some quite interesting meetings with with North Koreans who regularly came to to Stockholm. And this has, of course, not been the case since uh, last summer mm. due to restrictions in traveling and so on. So we haven't had a chance to interact with North uh, Koreans since uh, since I arrived at the UI or the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, where I am right now. But I hope that that will change in the future. Certainly, yeah. That's uh, a lot of things have been. Uh, still and quiet uh, since the beginning of the COVID era. Oh, oh. I, I saw in a, in a recent, very recent news report that uh, Cipri, where you were before, um, gave estimates for this year for the number of actual assembled nuclear warheads that North Korea possesses, uh, and it, it gave the maximum number of 20. Um, oh. d- did you see that uh, report as well? Yes, I did. Yeah. 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 And, uh, do you have any comment on that? Well, I, the only thing uh, that I can say is that it is, of course, uh, extremely difficult to know exactly how yeah. many uh, warheads uh, uh, or bombs uh, that they they have. Uh, there might be assessments in the undisclosed intelligence world, but uh, having been at Cipri for many years, I know that Cipri works exclusively with with open sources and. Mm and triangulating uh, what various uh, uh, analysts and experts uh, say, uh, I, I don't think that is a, an, uh, an unrealistic number, but at the end of the day, it is difficult to say exactly how many they have. Right. And, and then that is, of course, to be separated from the delivery uh, uh, you know, vehicles. And yeah. it's one thing to have the bomb. It's another one to be able to launch it. And we, of course, we've of course all seen all of the missile launches, both cruise missiles and intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles. And I think the jury is still out whether they have been able to render those nuclear uh, weapons or devices uh, sufficiently small mm. to to be put into uh, those missiles, uh, even though the signs are maybe ominous, uh, it's still a long way to go to have an operational uh, force uh, that is, is is really, really, uh, uh, yeah, operational in in, yeah. In, a, in in a reliable sense from a military perspective. Now, the uh, the Swedish Institute for International Affairs or UI, how does that differ from CIPRI? Is there much overlap? CIPRI is a is a foundation whose focus is very much the uh, focusing on the whole world outside uh, Sweden, mm-hmm. uh, uh, research and analysis, and they have their world class uh, databases, etc., military spending, and so on. 
UI or Swedish Institute of International Affairs have essentially three mandates. They're partly overlapping, partly different. We also do research on international affairs. We do a lot of policy analysis, but then we also have a mandate to do public outreach and public education in mm -hmm. Sweden in Swedish. We founded already in 1938 at the time, not yeah. entirely unlike today, where it was realized that there was a huge need to understand what was happening around the world. So we do a lot of seminars and outreach and publications in, in Swedish, mm -hmm. but we're also doing increasingly a lot of work in uh, anal analysis and research in, in English as, as well. So, uh, yeah, partly partly similar and partly different and kind of adding up to this interesting landscape of, of yeah. think tanks, research institutes that uh, we have in Stockholm. Well, that's right. I mean, there's also uh, one which I was just made aware of uh, recently. That's the uh, the ah. Institute for Security and Development Policy, ISDP, oh. which has right. a, a specific research center for inter-Korean affairs called the Stockholm exactly. Korea Center. Uh, yeah. I know that's not where you work, but can you tell us anything about it and, and how it relates to uh, to UI and, and CIPRI? No, I think that is exactly what I meant when I said that Stockholm is becoming quite an interesting place for any any Korea uh, watcher. We, of course, have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as well and the, uh, the Swedish in, the Swedish engagement in, in the Korean Peninsula, which mm. we'll talk about uh, later. Uh, ISDP is focusing on Central Asia, uh, uh, Northeast Asia, China to some extent, I believe, also Southeast Asia. So they're very uh, geographically, thematically uh, focused on those mm -hmm. uh, areas. And uh, yeah, we, they do very good uh, things, uh, which I'd say complement and adds to 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 the picture of of interesting work from mm -hmm. many angles because as we know there's no shortage of angles uh, yeah. uh, regarding regarding uh, events and and developments in northeast asia mm, so so i'd say we are complementing each other uh, fairly well and, and why is what makes uh, stockholm so special why is there this unique uh, landscape of interesting uh, think tanks and institutes looking at foreign affairs and and in particular in korea I guess it's uh, a result of a long tradition of international and global engagement from successive Swedish governments, the, the many years of neutrality and non-alignment, but most importantly, I would say a real wish and will by successive Swedish governments to, mm -hmm. to invest in uh, yeah, mediation, facilitation. In this good uh, Nordic uh, tradition, we see similar patterns in Norway and in, in Finland uh, mm -hmm. as well. But regarding Northeast Asia and, and North Korea, uh, the fact that, that Sweden was the first Western country to open diplomatic relations already in the 70s with North Korea and other things related to that have, of course, uh, have, of course, uh, added to the interest, I would say, also from the North Korean side in yeah. in Sweden and Stockholm as an interesting meeting place, etc. Yeah. So that, of course, means that it's an interesting place for North Korea and Korea and Northeast Asia watchers to to be uh, because interesting people uh, come uh, come through Stockholm. Yes, uh, you mentioned that uh, diplomatic relations were first normalized in the 1970s. So t tell us a little bit about diplomatic relations between Sweden and North Korea uh, and, and how, how they came to be normalized and, and set up embassies in each other's countries. Yeah, I, I, this was a political decision in the early 70s. There was a thaw in 1972 between the North and, and the South. Mm -hmm. and 
and Sweden was fiercely neutral at, at the time. Uh, so there was partly that uh, wish to, to balance relations with the West and the East, as it were. Mm-hmm. And there were partly maybe also a somewhat naive uh, belief that uh, there would be economic opportunities because as part of that neutrality policy at the time uh, the uh, you know trade wise and commercial outreach was made equally much to the soviet union uh, eastern europe as to uh, the west where of course the majority of all the trade and business was was done so for those reasons, it was decided uh, uh, that Sweden would open, uh, would seek opening of, of diplomatic relations, which was uh, apparently accepted on the North Korean side. So mm-hmm. they were established in 1973. And then that was followed by the opening of the embassy in Pyongyang in 1975. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, this builds on uh, quite a strong engagement and commitment to the Korean Peninsula, which started already during the Korean War when Sweden uh, sent this uh, this quite impressive field hospital mm. to Dan, which served for more than seven years and then led to, uh, you know, helping uh, South Korea's public health to, to, to grow. And uh, the field hospital was uh, caring for more than two million patient, patients over those years. And wow. then the end of the war, uh, when the armistice was signed, uh, Sweden was, of course, chosen to be one of the two uh, members of the Newton Nations Supervisory Commission on the southern side, together with Switzerland and then Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia, were of course there on the northern side. So there was already a, you know, a tradition of of engagement with both the south and the north. Mm-hmm. Because mind you, the the Newton Nations Supervisory uh, Commission in the first year, much of what they did was to oversee the repatriation of of, of refugees and and and, and war prisoners of war, etc., et even though they were only operating on the southern side. But there yeah. was kind of a, a, a knowledge and, and a tradition of, of, of sending Swedish officers for many years to Pamunion uh, in the 70s when, when this was uh, decided. And then after the opening of, of the embassy in 1975, uh, I think the next key development was in 1995 when when Sweden became the protective power of the United States and progressively also the Australia, Canada and the, the Nordic countries for, for consular affairs. Yeah, could you tell a little, a little bit about what that means? Because not everybody will be familiar with this concept of protective power. Well, it sounds, of course, a little bit funny to say that Sweden would be a protective power of the United States. But it does, is, yes. It, it does only pertain to consular affairs. So... Uh, in this case, the United States does not have a diplomatic re- diplomatic relations and yeah. do not have a diplomatic representation in, in Pyongyang. But this does, of course, not prevent American citizens from traveling to the country or hasn't, even though it has been limited. It, it has happened over the years. Right. So when they end up in trouble of some kind, they, uh, they need to be protected or uh, uh, taken care of uh, somehow mm-hmm. because the United States has a responsibility for their uh, citizens. And in those cases, there's then an agreement with Sweden who has a, uh, an embassy in the country to, to send its diplomats to ask for 
you know meetings with the with the persons who who might end up in uh, in trouble of, of of some kind that could of course be anything from prison to mm. illness in the worst case the death uh, and and uh, since that is part of the diplomatic relations between countries who have diplomatic relations that you are allowed to take care of your citizens or those you are responsible for that is essentially what is happening and there's been a couple of of high profile cases over the years as as you yeah. know where, where Sweden has been able to to assist in one way or another but of course always uh, ultimately depending on the goodwill of the host country mm. yeah that's right so you've told us a little bit about um Sweden in the neutral nation supervisory commission and, and Sweden uh, as a uh, as a protective power Sweden with its embassy opened in in Pyongyang in, in 75 does North Korea have an embassy in Stockholm yes yes they do and th- that I guess also adds to this strength uh, relative strength of of, of the bilateral mm-hmm. relation and that is the only embassy among the Nordic countries there's mm. another embassy in in Berlin and I think in Prague as well another so so this is the only one in the in the in the Nordic countries yeah uh-huh. and uh, do you remember which year that opened up I do not remember offhand but I'm quite sure it must have been a, a part of that reciprocal uh, opening of, of diplomatic relations so I'm, uh-huh. I, I Check it out, but I'm quite sure it must have been in the mid 70s as well. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, so a very similar time period. Yeah. Now, what does Sweden do to help bring together the two Koreas in either bilateral or multilateral uh, forums? Well, first of all, Sweden is, of course, not a, a mediator, but more, I'd say, rather a facilitator. Mm. And I, I, I think that the most recent push and you know strengthened uh, commitment uh, started in 2017 when the relations between North Korea and the United States were at a historical low the exchange of invectives and and quite worrying uh, war of words that happened at the time between mm. president the then president Trump in the United States and and the North Korean president Kim Jong-un was at a level which I think worried a lot of people including of course the nuclear test in September 2017 and the ICBM launch in November 2017 all of that uh, added to a situation where uh, Stockholm and Sweden uh, realized that okay we have relations be- between those two countries uh, we have a possibility to talk to the North Koreans uh, through various uh, channels is there anything that little Sweden could do mm. to somehow <laughs> contribute to promoting peaceful outcomes so at the time then apart from all the things I mentioned about the three missions in in uh, on the peninsula in Pyongyang in Pamunyeon and in 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 Seoul and the long uh, commitment to both countries uh, a special envoy was appointed uh, ambassador Herstedt Kent Herstedt so he started mm. to travel to uh, you know reinvigorate to further cultivate the personal contacts that we we had uh, both in Pyongyang in the United States and in the, all, in the uh, essentially all of the other countries in the six six party uh, format to see where there may be misunderstandings that could be straightened out or were there in other ways wish somehow to could we kind of send messages could we somehow provide any 
assistance that could uh, could add to a de-escalation of the of the situation at, at that time. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think Sweden should in any way take any credit for for the peace diplomacy and Olympic diplomacy that happened in 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 February 2018, which we spoke about earlier, yeah. the, the hopeful, but but maybe in the in the fridges in the margins, it was helpful that someone uh, was how how should I put it acceptable to talk to to both uh, uh, sides and and that that could add a little bit to to the de-escalation. Uh, um, uh, you know, along with many other factors. Uh. Yes, yes. So certainly, uh, Sweden was important in facilitating a meeting place or a safe space for the United States and North Korea to talk. Uh, was there a precedent for this? I mean, had Sweden played host to non-public dialogues between the US and DPRK before 2017? Oh yeah, no, but there's, there had been many meetings under the radar, so-called Track 1.5 or Track 2 mm. uh, format, which had uh, preceded uh, that. Uh, so, uh, but but what happened in in 2019 in in January, just before Hanoi, and then later on in October in 2019, yeah, that was more Track One uh, official right. meetings. But but before that, uh, many uh, several meetings had had happened more you know, with uh, former officials or officials who uh, came in the capacity as, as academics or, you know, the the uh, the famous uh, track 1.5 or track 2 type of meetings where uh, officials and representatives can talk more openly, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, even though on the North Korean side, it's it's rare to to meet people who speak openly. They of course have to follow a very tight uh, script. But the yeah. fact that they came uh, was was important, including, for instance, the the current newly appointed foreign minister, Madame Chos, Chos, and he came to to Stockholm and and to the other Nordic countries uh, several times in those years. Yes, the uh, as I recall, the last substantive meeting between. The U.S. And, and DPRK, certainly in track one, was the one you just mentioned in October 2019 uh, between oh. Steve Began and North Korea's chief nuclear negotiator at that time, Kim Jong-il, uh, oh. in Stockholm. Now, that meeting didn't end well, and that was the end of the direct negotiations until one. Are you able to give any insight on why it went so badly? I think uh, I wasn't there, so I can't give any direct first-hand insight, but I, I think it needs to be seen in the context of what happened in 2019, where Hanoi uh, broke down, and uh, if you might recall, North Korea gave some kind of a deadline until the end of the year 2019, mm-hmm. otherwise there would be a Christmas present, and there were also, after Hanoi, one more direct meeting between uh, Kim Jong-un and President Trump and how North Korea described it as if uh, relations with the U.S. were bad, but uh, relations with President Trump were were still uh, good. And and I think it was reflective of a, a wish to possibly see if some something uh, uh, in this dialogue could still be saved. But uh, what uh, from what I understand from the readouts and from the discussions with the people who were there in October 2019, the North Korean uh, delegation might have come already to the meeting with like a 95 percent 
clear instructions saying that they would make the negotiations break down, but but maybe also with a 5% benefit of the doubt if the American side would bring things to the table um, related to the, the wishes from the North Korean side. If you remember from Hanoi, they were talking about four or five crucial sanctions that should be lifted. Then they would maybe have allowed uh, that uh, dialogue to continue. But uh, as I remember, the American side wanted to, you know, saw this as a, as a longer process of starting a dialogue where it was difficult to, <laughs> to agree on, on such crucial uh, concessions without the, you know, the necessary, you know, concessions from the, from the North Korean uh, side. And, and so it might be that the decisions were, was already made mm. uh, on the North Korean side to give the, the American side a, a snub. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, the chances were anyway not very high uh, before that, that meeting that um, uh, it, would, it would lead forward, even though it was, of course, uh, interesting that they came all the way to Stockholm. They wanted to meet. So and difficult to to say, but the chances weren't very high anyway. After after Hanoi, which I, yes. I feel it was kind of uh, described as uh, you know seen in North Korea as a humiliation, uh, etc. And on the other hand, on the American side, it was difficult to to agree to the American so to the North Korean demands. Uh, so maybe they were simply too far apart. Uh, the Institute for International Affairs, which you're now the director of, uh, two and a half years ago issued a brief in February 2020 called Korean Unification, Can the Dream Be Realized? Are you familiar with this brief? Sure, yes. Can you summarize its conclusion for us? Can the dream be realized? Well, essentially, the response is uh, no, or at least uh, extremely unlikely, unfortunately. Ah. Uh, this is what... Uh, some colleagues uh, wrote that at, at the time where they essentially, you know, listing the challenges to a, a reunification where they are looking at economic costs, uh, the international sanctions, uh, U.S. and Chinese uh, wariness to, to allow a, a, a unified uh, Korea, given the much the wider geopolitical and geostrategic location of the Peninsula and and but I think most importantly what they at the time assessed uh, and lowering interest in South Korean population to carry this uh, burden which I guess would be quite high economically etc in terms of an, an integration and that is of course besides the question of under what terms such a reunification should 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 happen so I think it's yeah. absolutely absolutely right from a Korean perspective to, to keep that uh, vision and, and dream alive, because you never know. History is, keeps, uh, keeps uh, surprising us. Yeah. If, you look at it, if you look at it coldly, analytically, a couple of quite magnificent uh, obstacles and, and thorny uh, issues, uh, which, which would need to be uh, taken, taken care of, so, so I guess that at, the colleagues at the time came to that uh, conclusion, and I, I guess personally, given my own experience, I, I, I would, uh, I would, uh, I would tend to agree. Even though, as I said, uh, we, we should, of course, as as a diplomat, which I used to be, should always uh, try to, you know, stay optimistic and yeah. try to see 
opportunities and, and all of a sudden things might happen, which are also positive, not all, only negative. But, but, but right now with the current events uh, globally and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, etc., yeah. uh, the pessimists uh, have the upper hand and, and the realists, uh, etc., well, let's talk about that uh, a little bit. Yeah, Vladimir Putin's decision to launch a war on Ukraine has certainly changed many things in the global order, as you mentioned. What do you believe it has changed for North Korea? Well, I think that for North Korea, it means that they have a, uh, a stronger ally in, uh, in, in Russia, even yeah. stronger, and, and this might even help them to balance out the otherwise quite uh, huge uh, dependence on on. Uh, on, on, on China, I mean, they were one of the five countries only who voted, uh, you know, no against the General Assembly as a um, resolution condemning the, the Russian uh, illegal invasion of, of, of Ukraine. And, and they have uh, sent uh, or made a public announcement uh, supporting Russia in, in, yeah. in different ways. And uh, if now Russia is becoming increasingly internationally isolated, at least from the whole uh, West and OECD area, uh, they uh, they are in some ways joining a club where North Korea has been for a, for a yeah. long time. And I don't know what this uh, will mean for uh, Russian, uh, Russian um, willingness to abide to the to the sanctions uh, regime against mm. North Korea, etc. They did they, they voted against a, a draft resolution in the Security Council a couple of weeks ago after some of the uh, recent uh, North Korean missile launches, etc. Yeah. So I think it brings North Korea closer to 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 Russia, and and that is, I guess, from a North Korean perspective, uh, positive. Um, but looking at how uh, looking at Russia's mixed success in its Ukraine invasion. Do you have any thoughts on whether this might embolden Kim Jong-un to take some uh, adventurous risks or whether it might make him less likely to do anything rash? Well, I, I mean, I guess I don't know if North Korea ever has had, uh, or at least not for a long time, have had, uh, uh, a, you know, offensive military in tensions. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, you know, launching uh, uh, an attack on, on, on South Korea. I mean, certainly it was like that in, in the history, but, but it seems to me that uh, in the last decades and, and the nuclear we weapons programs, I think is an illustration of that, is to, to have a very uh, dissuasive, uh, defensive uh, force. Uh, and then they are, of course, whipping up the uh the the risk that the that south or, or the united states would 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 attack so i i mean if they were ever in the last decades nurturing a an idea of of invading the south i think that that has probably uh, you know veined even even further since mm. uh, russia's uh, russia's uh, invasion of of, of ukraine uh, but it's difficult to say. I mean, uh, from in, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine is, is still, and that war is still ongoing. And yeah. it has, it has uh, turned from an attempt to, you know, quickly conquer the country to some kind of uh, very primitive and extremely brutal uh, 
uh, warfare using a lot of old uh, conventional uh, weapons, fighting meter uh, for 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 a meter. Yeah, I don't think North Korea assesses that they would have the the resources to to engage in something like that, unless mm. of course they got full support from China and yeah. Russia. I don't know if that is in anyone's interest right now. Mm. Yeah. Now, um, Sweden's recent decision to join NATO uh, is is a related matter in that it is also caused or accelerated by the war on Ukraine, but separate to uh, the North Korean situation. However, it, it does raise interesting questions about um, you know Sweden's neutrality, Sweden's continuing role in the NNSC, and, and Sweden as a neutral middle ground or facilitator between the DPRK and the US. So I was wondering what uh, what your thoughts are, and what does it mean that Sweden has applied to join NATO, ending its historic neutrality? Well, first of all, the neutrality was ended already in the 1990s when Sweden joined the European Union. So since then, Sweden has mil been militarily uh, non-aligned, non but mm. with a very close collaboration with, with, with NATO. But it is true that the application to, to join uh, NATO is, is ending that era of first neutrality and then uh, military non-alignment. Non, non, non mm. Yeah, it, it will remains to be seen how the parties will react to this uh, uh, change of Swedish security uh, uh, policy. I mean, there are many examples of, of NATO countries like Norway and etc. And you know, other France, whatever, uh, Turkey, who have been uh, successful uh, negotiators in mm. different conflicts around the world. And as I alluded to in the beginning of of this uh, conversation, it has partly to do with the country's security policy identity, but it has a lot to do also with, you know, the willingness and the wish to engage and put resources behind uh, facilitation and mediation, etc. And and when it comes to the Korean Peninsula and, and Sweden's engagement, I mean, Sweden was, of course, not a, a warring party in the Korean War with this field hospital, which cared both for South Korean, uh, well, of course, first of all, the the combatants uh, in the in the alliance. Uh, I mean, the American and all of the sixteen countries who were were fighting, uh, but then also uh, South Korean um, uh, civilians and actually uh, quite a few uh, North Korean combatants, prisoners of war, etc. Yeah. So, so there is like this humanitarian uh, legacy, and then uh, this uh, role to serve in as a as a um, one of the um, one of the four countries in the NNSC since uh, 1953. So, so I guess uh, it remains to be seen how how. Uh, how that is uh, assessed from from all all sides. Uh, so North Korea, I mean, the embassy in Stockholm hasn't made a, an official comment on this yet. Then, no, not as far as I know. No. Oh. Okay, and um, if I understand correctly, it, it won't affect uh, Sweden's role in the NNSC. But North Korea has, over the years, found reasons to expel other members from the NNSC. You know, uh, mm. uh, Poland for one reason, and Czechoslovakia for no longer being a country. So. They throughout both the Czechs and the Slovaks. Uh, could they use this as an excuse to ignore Sweden? Well, first of all, it must be remembered that those countries, Czechoslovakia, which split up uh, yep. to become two countries, and then Poland, they were countries chosen by mm. the North. Chinese uh, so-called voluntary forces in North Korea 
at the time as members of the NNSC, whereas Switzerland and Sweden were chosen by the southern side, the United States and the, the UN command, etc. So uh, uh, that's, I mean, it's not North Korea's decision whether uh, Sweden and, and Switzerland should remain as as member of SNSC. Yeah? Mm. That's uh, more on the southern side. But I, I do see now that North Korea has indeed denounced Sweden and Finland for expected uh, applications. Oh. Whether, will, whether that will, this is on Yonhap, and whether that will have a bearing on the NNSC it remains yeah. to be seen, but but so far I'm not aware of that. And outside the NNSC, will do you think that North Korea will continue to respect Sweden's role as an honest broker between the various parties, or is is there a danger that Sweden might lose its prominence to fellow neutral small state uh, Sw- Switzerland? Difficult to say. It's, we haven't seen any clear indications of that as of as of as of yet. Uh, I mean, Switzerland is uh, magnificently well-placed to to do a lot of uh, uh, mediation and facilitation, a permanent place. But so is, for instance, Norway, uh, which has been a NATO country since the 1940s. So so this is kind of adding to my point that it is... Mm. Uh, it, it's, there are several factors that de- determines whether... Uh, conflicting parties would uh, would accept an, an 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 outsider as facilitator or or honest uh, broker and uh, so so uh, difficult to say but no so far we're not aware of that there has been a, a change. Final question here: Do you have any hopes uh, for for future improvement during your time there at the uh, the Swedish Institute for uh, International Affairs? Well, I always uh, remain, retain uh, the hope, uh, and, and I, as I said, history keeps uh, uh, surprising us. Yes. So, uh, I mean, it, there is no shortage of will or wish in in South Korea, and I believe also in North Korea to find a way forward to make sure that families can be reunited and that all Koreans sharing history culture, food, and, you know, norms in so many ways could could be reunited uh, again. But uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of challenges uh, which are intra-Korean and also external to the Korean uh, peninsula, which which makes this, of course, if you look at it realistically, not a particularly realistic possibility in the in the in the near term or in the in the in the in the close uh, uh, in, the, in the next few years, but then again, you never know. All of a sudden, parameters and conditions could mm. could could change. But uh, yeah, is there a possibility that you might be uh, at some stage named as a uh, a special uh, emissary uh, or ambassador to North Korea? We have an em- eminent and excellent ambassador uh, doing that since several years with a lot of networks and knowledge in Kent Herstedt. Uh, and and he's doing a great job. Uh, I I just uh, started a, a, a new uh, job, so uh, I, that I don't think is a very realistic uh, option uh, right now. And and Kent is is really doing fantastic, and, and I hope uh, he will continue for a long time doing what he's so good at. Excellent. Okay. Well, we wish you uh, good luck there uh, in your uh, new job at at UI. Thanks a lot, Jacko, and and uh, great to talk to you today. Thank you for coming back on the show, Jakob Hagren. You can follow Jakob on Twitter at Hagren Jakob. We'll put the link in the show notes.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of today's podcast. If you already have an NK News subscription, you can check out our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today and also ask for a free trial membership. Also, if you have any feedback, questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time.